So it, it, there's a, a little bit of a history of economic cycles ending space cycles. What I think is different this time is that so many of the fundamentals have changed of the space industry. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. This week's economic news is essentially confirming what your bank statements are telling you. Inflation is biting into everyone's bottom line. The fuel cost to deliver goods and services to your local grocer and up to low Earth orbit are rocketing. Since February, when Russia invaded Ukraine and nations slapped Moscow with economic sanctions, gasoline has jumped 37%. No surprise to you, I'm sure. But did you know that in the same four-month period, the producer price of all all kerosene products shot up by 85%, and that includes rocket-grade kerosene, also called RP-1. It's the stuff SpaceX uses along with liquid oxygen to launch the Falcon 9. And as you know, increasing fuel costs get passed on to the consumer. Earlier this year, SpaceX raised its base price for its rideshare launch service from a million dollars to a million point one. And users of SpaceX's Starlink satellite broadband service, they're shelling out more too. We've just finished the second financial quarter, which means we're at the mid-year mark. There is historic inflation, and later this month, it's likely the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates again. That doesn't just affect mortgages. It also hits investors. Second quarter investment in the commercial space sector dropped by 45%, according to Space Capital, which is a seed stage venture capital firm. Now, to understand the macroeconomic forces that are just as inescapable as gravity, I spoke with Chris Quilty. He's one of the pioneers of Wall Street analysis for the commercial space sector and is the founder of Quilty Analytics. Here's our conversation. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Downlink. Well, thanks for having me. As this is your first time on the podcast, I'd love for the audience to get to know you first. So take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us about Quilty Analytics. I mean, there's much more under the hood than producing commercial space sector analysis. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Quilty Analytics, a relatively uh, small group, dozen or so folks that are focused on the satellite and space industry exclusively. Um, there's two primary lines of business that we conduct. One is research, uh, which I lead, uh, and that's something I've done for 25 years now, uh, writing financial research on the space industry. Um, and our clients include uh, institutional investors, corporate government clients uh, that read us for intelligence on the industry, uh, on the financing activity, uh, competitive intelligence, and eh, a little bit of technology and regulatory stuff here and there when we go out ahead of our skis. Um, we also do investment banking work, uh, primarily mergers and acquisitions. Uh, we've done a number of transactions here as well as in our prior life. Uh, and every now and then we'll do a little bit of consulting work, uh, helping clients understand uh, you know, strategic issues within the industry, uh, but that's not really a, a primary line for us. Prior to launching, and pun intended, 
Prior to you launching Quilty Analytics, you spent two decades with Raymond James and your research and analysis focused on a handful of industries. What inspired you to leave one of the country's largest wealth management and investment banking firms not headquartered in New York and set up a space-focused firm? Uh, well, so it was kind of easy, I, I guess. I mean, when I joined Raymond James in the early days, I was primarily a small cap defense analyst uh, covering companies in defense communications and electronics. And so, you know, post 9-11, something happened, which is every single small cap defense company in the U.S. got acquired. So to stay gainfully employed, I had to reinvent myself. And there was a, a close adjacency in the space industry, which uh, had basically gone bankrupt uh, only five years before uh, in the late 90s. And so there weren't a bunch of people doing it. And, uh, you know, it, it was an industry that was still waiting to rebound. And so it, it looked interestingly enough, I had a little bit of knowledge and uh, kind of walked out on that plank. Uh, we built out our, our coverage of the industry to include everything from spanning from ground equipment to satellite manufacturing, launch, the operators. Uh, we were pretty successful transactionally. We led the IPO for uh, Iridium, which, by the way, was the world's very first space SPAC transaction. People forget. It wasn't such a dirty word back then. Um, and then uh, I guess after 20 years, I, I decided it was finally time to get a, a real job uh, for the first time in my life and uh, had some offers within the industry to go out and do strategy, CFO, IR. And uh, a friend in the industry pointed out that I was the only analyst on Wall Street writing on the space industry and that I was pretty good, or at least I was the best there was, jerk. Um, and he said, you know, well, why don't you think about doing this on your own? And so I, I pulled enough clients uh, in terms of investors and, and folks in the industry, and they seemed willing uh, to go ahead and, and buy what I was writing. And so off we went. And that was the start of it about six years ago. So now let's turn to the subject at hand the state of the commercial space sector and investment at the mid-year mark. This week, we learned inflation reached 9.1%. The Bank of Canada raised its lending rate in response to that by a percent. In May, the Federal Reserve Board raised its rate to 1% and is now expected to raise the cost of borrowing by another percent at this month's meeting. How does this affect the commercial space sector? I mean, there's two parts to this question, inflation and rising lending rates. So why don't we start with what's known? Inflation is at 9.1%. And, you know, how does that affect commercial space? Well, uh, the industry is not immune from those in inflationary pressures. Uh, we've heard over the last six months, companies that have raised prices uh, for their services. Uh, some companies have raised prices and lost business. And uh, to show you just how deeply it is hitting the industry, you know, one of our core thesis on, you know, why the industry is growing and, and why we've seen this major breakout in the last five to 10 years is that launch costs have come down. And that is true. You know, the, the traditional 10 to $20,000 a kilogram, thanks to SpaceX, has moved down to you know, 5,000 for a ride share and 1,600 bucks for a Falcon Heavy. And yet, even SpaceX raised prices. 
They raise prices on the Falcon 9. They raise prices on their Starlink service. So uh, the, the industry has been reacting. And some of those effects are a little bit more subtle uh, in terms of supply chain. And supply chain is a little bit of a separate issue. Again, not in, uh, indifferent from what is happening across the entire global economy. Uh, but we've seen major slowdowns in manufacturing uh, and product delivery times uh, simply because, you know, products are not available or they're back ordered. You know, things that might have been delivered in two weeks are taking, you know, six months to a year to get delivered. And that'll have an impact on end pricing of services. And what about the increasing cost of borrowing? I mean, that's got to have an impact on investor appetite. You know, just released um, a just released report by Space Capital states that for the most part, investors are waiting and watching. What are you seeing? Well, there, there's two parts to that question when we look at both the public markets and the private markets. And I'll start with the private markets, which uh, for those of you that are not familiar, investing in private space has not been a thing until very recently. In fact, if you go back to 2014, in the decade prior, there, were an there was an average of $140 million invested globally, annually, <laughs> in space companies. So, I mean, it was beyond a rounding error. Now, last year, by our metric, it was almost $11 billion that was invested in the industry. So what we've seen is a very steep acceleration in private capital, primarily venture capital, but also some public equity coming into the markets. And uh, look, uh, in venture investing across the board is down. Will it be down more severely for the space sector since it's considered more of a, a frontier investing uh, realm, maybe We're, we'll find out over the period of the next several quarters. But um, what I would point out is it's a little bit more critical uh, for this industry. Space is by its nature capital intensive. And so there's a lot more sensitivity to those capital inflows. Uh, flip the switch and let's talk about the, the public markets. Uh, likewise, we've seen a bloodbath, you know, pretty much across the board of every public company. Uh, in the industry. As you'd expect, some of the newer companies and, and SPAC companies have, have taken it harder. Uh, but, you know, in certain cases, you're seeing companies that are still able to, you know, either raise capital or refinance it at still attractive rates. Uh, Maxar, albeit coming down from a leverage peak, recently uh, refinanced $500 million of debt and saved a couple hundred bips. So the markets are still working. They're a little bit more challenging. And, uh, you know, I think the, the smart companies here will probably look to preserve capital, keep their runways going, and, uh, you know, try to keep the, the, the balance sheet full uh, in terms of their capital, uh, their cash standings, uh, both to keep the business running optimally, but also there's going to be some opportunities, right, of companies that are ill-positioned. And so this is the kind of time frame where, those who are well positioned have an opportunity to swoop in and find attractive acquisitions. This week, the House passed its version of the National Defense Authorization Act. 
And when all is said and done, the Department of Defense is likely to receive $27 billion for all of its space activities. That's a roughly 20% bump over the 2022 budget. I would think that kind of certainty would reassure some investors, no? Well, it, it does, but uh, it, it's not uh, the entire enchilada, right? Look, in this industry, in the space industry, is disproportionately dependent upon the government as a customer. Now, it depends on the sector we're talking about. For most of the traditional sat- satellite operators, geo-satellite operators, it's between 10 to 20% of their business. For other sectors like Earth observation, it's you know 50 to north of 80% of revenues might be coming from the government. So um, while helpful, uh, perhaps not totally sufficient to see those government budgets moving in the right direction. And again, you know, let's make a, uh, a, a split here mentally between the prime contractors, which have historically vacuumed up most of those dollars and the rest of the industry. Now, there is a trend that has happened recently and probably most notably or most visibly with the Space Development Agency, which, my goodness, didn't even exist in 2018. Uh, They are moving pretty aggressively to build out this, you know, thousand satellite proliferated LEO constellation uh, using an Elon Musk-like spiral development of, you know, launching new spirals every two years, uh, sticking to that schedule. And for an organization like that, they have uh, moved much more aggressively towards, um, let's call them traditionally commercial suppliers rather than prime contractors. So, you know, the aggregate money matters, but it also matters how the government is spending it. And as we're on defense, uh, the big defense uh, companies like Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Airbus, They're going to be releasing their second quarter earnings later this month. What are you expecting from those? Uh, For all of them within their space business, which uh, unfortunately they're not uh, exceptionally well broken out, they'll they'll provide some commentary on it. You know, those uh, large prime contractors tend to be dominated by, you know, large pillar programs. And what we've seen over the course of time is, you know, whether the SLS program or a major NRO program, you know, where it is in its milestone and percentage of completion, you know, tend to be the bigger factor in the quarterly results than anything that tends to be, you know, temporary market reactions or, you know, current interest rates. Um, For those uh, prime contractors, you know, what's really important and what investors tend to focus in on is what the order book and the backlog look like uh, as you know, the longer-term indicator of where those businesses are going, and you know, insofar as certainty, there's also uncertainty, and it's known for dampening an appetite for investing. But we are living in an uncertain time geopolitically. Isn't that a benefit for growth for for some small space businesses, especially as the market for products like Earth imaging is expanding beyond government customers? Uh, it absolutely is. Um, you know, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, a lot of companies in the space industry benefit from disaster, you know, whether that's the war in Ukraine, which is driving huge demand for 
optical imagery and SAR imagery and, and other uh, services, telecom, you know, satellite communication services, radio frequency mapping of the battlefield. Uh, this has been boom time for companies. And likewise, um, you know, the, the industry plays a role in just normal disaster recovery. When, when hurricanes hit, you know, iridium satellite phones start flying. So, uh, you know, the industry is not um, necessarily dependent on these activities, but they tend to lead to times of acceleration where the technology sees higher adoption rates and, and often a lot of stickiness uh, from new adopters. And that, that stickiness for new adopters, you know, th there is a, a thought that commercial space is maturing enough to stand on its own um, without having to rely on, on government funding. Is that really true or is it is it getting close or is it a far way off? Depends on what sector you're talking about. You know, the, the SATCOM industry, uh, which is, you know, the, the oldest uh, part and longest standing part of the industry, as I mentioned before, you know, for most of the, the traditional geo operators, 10 to 20% of revenue, government is important, but it's not pivotal. Um, Likewise, uh, the Earth observation industry today is uh, eighty percent, you know, government, and so yeah, it's it's absolutely critical. And I think the government understands uh, that this is a critical capability, you know, for the government to have access to. Uh, I mean, I think even friends and family that that don't know what I do in terms of space research, you know, commented to me like, "Hey, look at this company, Maxar." Uh, I keep seeing all these imagery, you know, coming out of Ukraine. And so it's created a little bit of awareness. But look, here's the reality. Uh, Maxar, uh, their uh, earth intelligence business, which is about a billion one in revenue, uh, they are the combination of the three original companies that, that began in the earth observation industry, uh, Digital Globe, GOI, and Space Imaging. You know, out of that... 1.1 billion in revenue, there is 170 million of commercial revenues. And that's after more than two decades. So clearly the commercial business has not yet scaled uh, in the way that people thought it would in the late 90s or even the 2000s or even the 2010s. Um, I tend to think that, you know, this particular industry is on the precipice uh, or on the cusp or on the front end of the hockey stick of seeing much higher commercial adoption rates. Uh, we can talk about that, you know, in more detail. But there's a lot of thing, good things happening in terms of uh, cloud computing and AI and ML and the revisit rate of these constellations and improving uh, resolution and lowering costs. All of which should lead lead to higher commercial adoption. Uh, but we're not there yet. I've also heard, you know, folks on panels and in workshops that I've attended say that there is a reckoning coming in the commercial space sector that, you know, there's a, there's a point when the wheat is going to be separated from the chaff. Are we entering that phase? Are we in that phase? Is that phase coming? So I thought that phase was going to happen during COVID and uh, we were ready to, to batten down the hatches, you know, sort of internally when, when COVID hit, uh, we, we didn't anticipate the flood of government money and, and the subsequent reversal of that cash outflow uh, back. And, and so, 
you know, I think we got a, a pass back, you know, in 2000 and we're, we're getting our comeuppance now here in 2022 where we are seeing capital inflows slowing or reversing. And, um, you know, what I had been warning going into COVID for years was that there was an unsustainable level of investment in certain sectors. And, you know, the obvious one people always point out is the launch sector, where there are more than 100, you know, startups announced. A lot of them are vaporware, but there's a lot of companies who have raised significant capital. And I can tell you, um, you know, simple metrics uh, around, you know, the number of launches that happen annually, the number of satellites that are launching annually that would say, you know, the market cannot support that many players in the market. Um, so, yeah, I, I think in certain sectors, we are going to see uh, companies failing. Uh, and, you know, that's healthy in a, in a capital economy. But it's also a little scary for an industry that is only, you know, five to seven years into a venture and venture investing capital cycle where investors have not seen, you know, wreckage, have not dealt with it. And so we don't know what the reaction or the outcome of the investment community will be. If, if the tap turns off, you know, entirely uh, and, and happens quickly, uh, the wreckage could be pretty severe. You mentioned that there are certain sectors where there's, I guess, more of a prevalence of, of vaporware, to use your term. I, could you tell us what those sectors are? You're trying to get me in trouble? A little. Um, so, um, you know, I, I mentioned launch. And look, I, I think I said at the outset that launch is, is critical. I mean, it <laughs> goes without saying, if you can't launch, you don't have a space industry, right? Um, you know, one area that I am particularly excited about that is a emerging part of the industry is the cislunar space market. And, you know, for those of you unfamiliar with that term, we're, we're basically talking about anything ranging from low Earth orbit, you know, out to the, was it the L1 Lagrange point of the moon? But, you know, you're encapsulating this large area that it that extends beyond the traditional LEO and GEO belt and a lot of activities that are still very emergent. Everything from on-orbit manufacturing and refueling depots and space domain awareness and lunar activities. And we're in the very, very early stages of that. You know, we had seen back uh, again in, in the 2010s, there were a number of cislunar companies that started up you know, to do asteroid mining and other things that failed relatively quickly. Uh, I would like to think, you know, five years uh, hence, we're, we're now at a much better place in terms of the technology and the development of the industry. But, you know, if, if the capital flows are turned off, you know, that uh, emerging growth in the area of cislunar space, you know, could get killed or, or significantly delayed for a number of years. If you could predict one thing about the space sector for the second half of the year, or two, if you feel like it, what would it be? Um, so there's a very good chance that we will see for the second year in a row, record global launch activity, and certainly record activity here in the United States. You know, that that's from where we stand now, mid-year, we're, we're well on the path to that happening. Um, 
you know, when I look out at the uh, the financial markets, uh, I, geez, I've been doing this for 25 years. Um, uh, I, I really am loath to predict, you know, where the market is going to finish up for the years and year and what what that implies. Um, but you know, the U.S. industry, the the global industry, has been growing at a breakneck speed. Uh, things are going to slow down. Things are going to get pushed to the right. Not that that isn't uncommon in this industry, um, but I, you know, I'm still optimistic. Uh, you know, if you or take the long-term view on this industry. Uh, I, I call this the sort of the space 3.0 era. Space 1.0 back in the 60s and early 70s was primarily government-driven spending. Space 2.0 in the 90s was primarily corporate financed by, you know, Motorola, Laurel, and Lockheed, and Boeing, and other companies. And, and that ended poorly when another recession happened you know, the the year 2000 Y2K internet bubble bursting. So it, it, there's a, a little bit of a history of economic cycles, ending space cycles. What I think is different this time is that so many of the fundamentals have changed of the space industry. The cost of launch, the cost of building a satellite, the cost of moving data uh, has just changed so dramatically in the last several years that to me, I think there's a much more sustainable case around, uh, you know, this this cycle not dying in the bud and going into another 10-year drought before people get excited about space again. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.